Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we work to amplify the voices and ideas of changemakers in education. We talk with students, educators, and thought leaders who are questioning the status quo and resisting tradition in education. So welcome Rebel Educators to this episode of the Rebel Educator Podcast. Welcome, LinkedIn friends. Hello, Rebel Educators. I'm here today with Chris Baum, and we are talking about his book, Finding the Magic in Middle School. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. I'm so excited to hear more about the book. I know we talked on the podcast before you released it, and you were sharing that it was coming out, but now I've read it, and I can't wait to hear your thoughts on some of the chapters and information inside. Thanks so much, Tanya. I love getting to talk about this. Thanks for having me. So, the whole What kind of the theme throughout the book, but definitely the first part of the book is really focused on three pieces or three kind of core themes of middle school, that of authenticity, achievement, and belonging. So let's start there. Can you share a little bit about those three themes and what that means in middle school and throughout the book? Yes. So, I mean, the the big picture here is that middle school, you know, might have the worst reputation of any phase of our entire lifespan. (laughs) And what I hope this book will do is help people understand more deeply what's really going on in middle schoolers' brains and how that leads them to have certain needs. And that if we help them meet those needs and drives, then we'll actually see a really different kind of person, not the resistant, checked out, frustrated kind of classic middle schooler but actually someone who's highly, highly motivated. And so what you're pointing to, those three developmental stages are kind of the heart of that. So briefly, and then we can go in any direction that's useful here. It's the idea is that all of us, as we're entering a new stage of life, it's as true for adults too, but especially for middle schoolers, because for the first time in their whole lives, their social brain is turning it on and they can suddenly see the things that you and I take for granted, where We see how groups are formed. We see status. uh, We see that people are judging us all the time. Middle schoolers are just picking that up for the first time. And for most of them, that means at the beginning, it creates a real fear that I may not belong. I'm not sure if I'm welcome here. I'm not sure what other people are thinking about me. You know, I realize that they're thinking something about me, but I'm not sure what. So the first part of the book is trying to make the point that the first stage for any good middle school experience is a sense of belonging. That at least, you know, one group, one person, one part of the formal structure of the school feels like home. And we can talk about advisory and other ways that we kind of make sure that this happens in middle school. But I think the point for whether it's a parent or teacher listening to this, if you don't feel a sense of belonging as you're beginning middle school, beginning adolescence, the level of threat that that creates is going to stop you from learning to anywhere close to your full potential, even simply just to being happy in your day-to-day life. So belonging is the beginning. It's not the end though. It's not enough on its own. Belonging lets you drop some of your defenses, lets you show what you're passionate about, lets you start to explore and take some positive risks. And when you do that, you move into the stage uh, of achievements where I feel safe here. I do belong here. And now I want to show you what I can do. So achievement is about demonstrating that I can do valuable things based on your terms. Maybe that value is academic progress. Uh, Maybe it's athletic. Maybe it's social. Maybe it's a contribution in some other way. And then at some point, 
usually toward the later part of middle school, just winning someone else's game is always enough. And middle schoolers will start to ask, you know, why are we doing this? Do grades actually matter? All of those things that all of us, whether we're parents or teachers, have heard. And that's the signal they're moving into that third and final stage developmentally of authenticity, which is I want to show that I can be valuable, that I can win on my own terms, that I can be myself, that I can bring that into this community. And essentially, you know, when they do that, they're finding their most powerful self, the self that is willing to put something out there that they're passionate about, whether it's cool or not, that is resilient to keep pursuing it, uh, even, you know, in the face of difficulty. That's the goal. Uh, if they can complete middle school having just a flavor of that, then they've gone through those stages of belonging to achievement, to authenticity. And that is a fantastic middle school journey. Sorry for the long answer. <laughs> That's the quick outline. No, that was great. When you first started talking, it reminded me, like you mentioned how middle school is kind of the bane of some people's existence, or it seems like this pit or this thing that we remember that we had to go through. You know, elementary school was fun and we all ran around in the playground and we had our friends. Then there was middle school and then, you know, high school. Then you're looking towards college or towards the next thing and you're kind of working towards a means to an end. And middle school feels like almost this slump in the middle. One of the jobs I had when I was teaching snowboarding was as a substitute teacher. And I used to get called into the middle school. And after spending several days with sixth and seventh graders, I remember thinking, I'll never do this. Like, I'll never be a teacher. I will never be in middle school. This is fine for the extra income right now that I need to be able to live in the ski town. But this is a really difficult time. But the way that you framed it turns it from this seemingly difficult time into, well, the title of your book, Magic, like the second magical period in life where we see this huge development in toddlerhood and from infancy into the preschool years. But then this also huge brain growth spurt and development spurt as we hit middle school. I can think of a story of my nephew, JC, and watching him around the time he turned 10 or 11. And he was this silly, goofy kid. He had two sisters. He was the one who was always making jokes and dancing. And all of a sudden, one day, he was about 10 and a half. We're like, JC, do you want to join the dance party? He's like, no, no, I'm good. It's happening. Yep. And it was that moment, like suddenly he was self-conscious and realizing people are watching and noticing what he's doing and that internal judgment of, are they judging me? Are they not? What's happening? Like it had all turned on and suddenly he's like, oh no. Mm -mm." That's it. That's That's the signal. Yeah. I'm so glad you raised that point about the brain development. I think it's really important to realize like early childhood and early adolescence are the two peak periods of brain growth in our lives. And they're also the two hardest times to be a parent because there's so much rapid change happening. And if you think about it, you know, those of us, you know, with young kids now, or you can look back to when that was true for you, if you didn't have a developmental sense of what are they doing at age two and what are they driven to do, you know, we would tear our hair out as it's bewildering. (laughs) But that developmental sense anchors us and we realize, okay, they're saying no because they're trying to declare, you know, a sense of independence or they're trying to figure out what their power is that now I can understand it. Same is true with middle school. That If we don't understand it developmentally, we'll go crazy. It seems like they're just doing this to bother us or to resist, you know, no matter what. But really, they are, they're working on developmental drives that are related to how rapidly their brains are changing. So that's, that's the essence of the book in many ways, that if we understand that, 
we don't have to babble them as much, um, if at all, and we can actually help them do their developmental work more easily. I think that's huge for teachers. How can we not battle, but instead work with their developmental phases? And I feel like that two-year-old who's saying no and trying to discover their independence is almost the same at 12. I'm also saying no, and I'm trying to discover my independence and see where that is. Exactly. You tell a story in the book from your time leading a middle school, and you talk about learning as adventure. And in this idea of where is my freedom and how much freedom can I have? You took a group of middle schoolers to Washington, D.C., and you set them free in the city. Can you share a little bit about you know, how that came to be, what that project and that trip was like, and how you convinced parents that this was a good idea? <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, definitely. I think the, just to zoom out a little bit and then to go into that story, it's, you know, for most of our species existence, this age of the beginning of adolescence was when you had to start being a productive member of your community. You had to do work that was clearly valuable, that would show you were trusted to some degree. And I think we still carry in us that developmental need that I need to do something valuable for you in order to feel like I am a valuable person. I have to be trusted with some degree of responsibility. If my entire day is just one adult control space after another, I'm never going to get the sense that I can manage things on my own. And middle schoolers don't like to feel like they're being babied. So if they're in those spaces and they feel like school is a giant game just to keep them occupied until they get older, of course, they're not going to put their full investment into it. They're smart enough to see through that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So long story short, to the DC trip, Millennium School, which I started uh, in San Francisco, we had a just visionary teacher who really believed that you have to trust kids and, you know, with support, give them greater degrees of responsibility than we might be most comfortable with. But that's how they figure out what they can do in the world. So lots of preparation and all kinds of projects leading up to it. Um, they went to Washington, D.C. for a week. And the day that they all remember the most and, you know, raved about the most was the day that in small groups, they had freedom to go wander the city on their own. And I tell the story in the book that, you know, when that teacher asked for permission to run the trip like that, probably any principal in their right mind would have a really quick, no, thank you. That doesn't sound <laughs> safe. But then thinking, you know, these are 13 and 14 year olds, you know, how can it be that they can't be out of adult sight for even a couple hours? That doesn't seem like it's honoring them at all. And of course, we prepared them. They memorized phone numbers. They had devices to be in touch, all of those things. But that's how they figure out what they can do. And when they're in middle schools that trust them and they get that adults are willing to give them some real responsibility, they show up differently in return. They look us in the eye. They're not trying to just be resistant to what we're doing just for the sake of resistance. They see that we are also trying to help them figure out how powerful they are. So it's scary. It's really scary, but it's also really worth it. And so how did you talk to your parents or how did that, I'm imagining you had like, a, hey, we're going on this field trip. This is the agenda. You've got to sign all the permission forms. Just right now, I'm leading a Girl Scout group and we're going up to Tahoe, right? It's three and a half hours away. And I have parents telling me that their child has never traveled that far and they've never been that far away from them. And so they're scared about letting them, these are middle schoolers scared about letting them go to Tahoe. And so there's parents on that side of the spectrum. And then you have parents like, I'm going to use me as an example, who 
fought with my child's school so that she could join their trip to Taiwan in April and be able to travel with the school and get the cultural experience and the language immersion. So you have this wide range of parents from parents who don't want their child more than two hours away from them, definitely not alone outside of the sight of an adult. And parents on the other side of the spectrum are saying, yes, you can have that independence. I think it's great. I trust you. Go do it. You know, how does that go in a parent relationship development and getting their buy-in on a trip like this? Yeah. I mean, it, it's complicated, as you said, and there's some parents <laughs> that are not going to be ready for it. And I, I respect that. But I think we, we just make the argument really strongly that this is developmentally what they need. If they stay in our comfort zone, that's actually not their best learning zone. We're going to be holding them back. Almost inevitably, we're lagging in our sense of what they can do. And in a different part of the book, I talk about something called the anchoring effect, which is just a common bias that we carry, that we are anchored on earlier information about someone. And it tends to take us a while to catch up with where they are now. That's true even of other adults we know. But when you think about one of our children, we know them when they were five years old and we wouldn't let them cross the street by themselves. And now they're 13 and they're all asking for more independence. And we tend to see them as younger than they really are. And then they tend to see themselves as older than they really are. And so there's a lot of conflict in that space. Balance. <laughs> exactly. But I think one solution is just to know we need to take one step out of our comfort zone. It doesn't mean, you know, just giving them the keys to the kingdom, but saying, if this is totally comfy for me as a parent, then it's probably not enough independence and responsibility for you as someone who's really rapidly changing. So we try to make that case and hope that parents understand that this is a developmental experience for their kids. With this trip, you did a lot of front loading. You did a lot of projects within the school. You did trips locally here so they knew how to read bus systems and all of those things. And that was a big part of Millennium School and a big part of what you've done is developed these projects and these quests for students to take on to continually be engaged in their learning and continually take on more responsibility. Can you talk a little bit about some of the other projects or quests and how they came about and how they're developmentally appropriate for middle schoolers? Yeah, I, I think the key is that middle schools can't be in islands. Like it needs to be part of the real world. Back to that same thing that middle schoolers want to feel like this is relevant. I'm not just being babysat. And they need to be in contact with objective adults. So not the people who are paid to take care of you and not the people who are related to you, but everyone else. The adults who have interesting jobs, who are working on challenges, those adults are in connection with you and giving you feedback on the quality of your work. That means a lot. So to give you an example, one of my favorite quests is one where students built rockets. And this had one where it's so hands-on, it's a way to learn physics. They worked in teams. They learned about the design process by iterating on, you know, what happens if I make the fins slightly larger? What happens if I shift where the center of gravity is? But then the key thing was at the very end of that quest, they are presenting to actually a panel of rocket scientists to tell them what they learned in this process and to show them you know, how their design evolved over six weeks. And I think that's really one of the key changes you know, from places like Millennium School and others that you need the right audience to receive your work. Again, if it's just your parents or just your teacher, they know you, you know you can kind of manipulate them or you can you know, make things up that will sound good to them. But when you're exposed to the real world, you don't have the ability to do that. Um, you are called to do 
much better work. And when you surprise yourself with the quality of that work, which is what we saw time and again in these culminations, that kind of, that's like credit in the bank for your sense of self-value, self-esteem. That rocket scientist was impressed with what I did, asked me thoughtful questions. I had a response that meant something to them. To do that as a 13-year-old, that's going to change your sense of who you are. If the other option is a school where you're you know, filling out worksheets, handing that into your teacher, you can tell the difference in motivation is going to be huge. Absolutely. I love that. Now I'm picturing like how we can set off rockets in front of our middle school and the cul-de-sac that we have. You should do it. <laughs> one, I'm picturing one going awry and like through yeah. the chiropractor's office next door. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So when we're building projects, it takes time. And one of the pieces, as you work through your book and you get to the section on how do we do this as schools and how do we do this as educators, you talk about generosity of time. And it's something going to a couple of conferences last week and different and independent school educators and public school educators. One of the things that continually came up is, yes, we'd like to teach in this really authentic way and we'd like to create these experiences for our students. But I have five 45-minute periods throughout the day. How do I do project learning with this bell schedule? And so how do we look at the way we build education differently, the way we create our students' schedule differently to really give them this time, the time that they want, the time that they're asking for? And just side note on that, as we're building our middle school, we asked our students what they want. Like, what is What middle school do you want? And our fourth and fifth graders, the thing that came up was we want more free choice for math and we want more free choice for engineering. And we want to spend time with the elementary school kids too, but maybe not all the time. We want time to hang out ourselves as middle schoolers. And so the thing that keeps coming up over and over again is this time. How do we create that that space for these types of projects and experiences? I'm so glad you raised that. I think you know one thing to realize is that schools are doing what they were designed to do. The way we schooled now was invented in the late 1800s, and it was explicitly modeled on factories. And the idea at the time was that every act can be timed and that it should take the same time for every person to do it. So if you're making a piece of steel, it should take 72 seconds and every worker should be able to do it at the same pace. And people just ported that over to schools because that schools were you know being created at mass, right when factories were seen as kind of the pinnacle of organizations. So there's just still, they're still functioning that way. They still feel like factories. They're still kind of preparing people for an assembly line, one right way to do things, one pace mindset. So I think, you know, there's the, the North Star is it is possible to break completely free of that and build schools that look nothing like factories. And the reality is our schools still have a lot of structural pieces that are like factories. And any step we take out of that is progress. So even if you are stuck in 45-minute blocks, you can start to include project elements in those blocks so that it doesn't feel like you're just babysitting with worksheets and then lecturing at kids. You can include collaborative teams. Um, you can create projects where there is not just one path to a solution, where students could surprise you with what the path is. You can bring an authentic audience, you know, like the proverbial rocket scientist at the end, so it's not just you, the teacher, who's doing the final evaluation. And if you have the freedom like you have to actually design a middle school or redesign it, then I think an ideal is to create bigger blocks of time so that we're not chopping up the day, constantly breaking kids' focus and concentration with the bell ringing, go on to the next thing. 
And I think one simple way to tell, like, is your school in good relationship with time is to look at the actual times on the schedule. If it's something like class starts at 1.23, that is a sign that something is not right in the relationship with time. That's like something that you would program into a machine to do something at 1.23, but humans don't function that way. We learn in emotional cycles. We get invested in something. We get frustrated with it. We have to work through that. That takes time. And you'll find if you give it that time, the learning results will be deeper and it will be remembered for longer. We know that we need emotion and we need social experience to actually encode information into our long-term memory. So for all those reasons, any step we can do to, to break out of the factory model of, you know, bell ringing every 45 minutes is progress and, and will lead to better learning. Yes, break out of the factory model. My school growing up, we started at 816 and school was out at 321. Yeah, there you go. Nobody thinks like that. That's not a human thing. That's a machine thing. I remember so many days looking at the clock at 320 going, just one more minute, 321. Exactly. Exactly. So when we're giving time, we also, you know, you mentioned we need time for our social structures to settle in. We need time for project learning to settle in. We need time to think about things and ruminate and time for it to really kind of embed in our brain and to create that brain development and back to the beginning of the conversation, bringing in that sense of belonging comes into all of that too in that social network. I know you've done a lot of work around advisory and you have some trainings and things coming up this summer where you lead others and, and help them through a process of creating a really rich and fulfilling advisory for students. Can you talk a little bit about what you see as the role of advisory and how you've used it in Millennium and the schools you've created and worked in? Thank you. I'm going to uh, try not to get too much on my soapbox about advisory. I feel very passionate about this, that it's a funny thing. You know, the majority of middle schools in the U.S. have advisory and probably 99% of those would say we don't really know what we're doing with this. It's kind of like a default homeroom, do your own thing, study hall type of time. So what it could be, and I think at Millennium, this was one of the signature things that has made it such a great middle school, is advisory should be the place where you have unconditional belonging. This is you know, ideally a smaller group, ideally consistent membership over all the years of middle school, if you can, where no matter what, you belong here, you can be honest here. It's adult facilitated, but not taught. I think the difference between instruction and facilitation is really the key here. It's not, let me read you this lesson about social emotional learning. It's how can I make a space where you would feel comfortable enough to say, what are you worried about right now? What's stressing you out? Or also, you know, what's on your mind that we could celebrate? And when it becomes that space, when teachers learn how to be facilitators of advisory, first of all, teachers often say it's the most satisfying part of their day because I'm not trying to plow through a bunch of content. I'm just creating a space where kids can be really real with each other. And can say, you know, I don't know how to ask that person out on a date. Like, what do I do? Or, you know, my brother is driving me crazy. I'm screaming at him every day. Like, what do I do about that? <laughs> like real things. And we can offer a social emotional tool in response when it's actually useful, you know, versus going through a scripted curriculum. So the essence of it is to teach how to be a facilitator, how to make us feel safe and responds, you know, peer to peer instead of always speaking to an adult. When someone's bringing something up, um, there are lots of interesting tools for how to do that. It's not a mystery. It's a known thing. And so, yeah, we have this training uh, every summer to introduce people 
from brand new teachers to very experienced teachers, middle and high school, how do I become a great advisor? And then on the, on the school side, I think the trick is how do we make time for this and, and protect it from some of the administrative needs? Sometimes advisory gets gobbled up by paperwork or other things that don't have another place to go and actually protect this space is if we can offer a sense of belonging there where you can process your, what's happening in your inner world, then you as a student will connect to all of school, you know, more openly, uh, more deeply. And we know that school connectedness leads to better outcomes from, from mental health to learning. I'll stop there, but advisory work, I, I really believe, is the heart of a great middle school. You launched Millennium. You created belonging. You built a strong advisory. You had students going through three years of projects and quests and development and giving them increasing responsibility. And one of the stories that you tell in the book is about the importance of creating traditions and what tradition means to community. And you talk about graduation. And I think it was the first graduating class. And the graduation itself was great. And it was nice. And their families were there. And it was a ceremony and a celebration. But that the real kind of graduation or the real coming together of that class and understanding they were moving on to something else happened elsewhere. Oh, thank you for the invitation to tell the story. It's one of my favorites. So I, I really believe in the power of ritual as, you know, a space where we get to be different, um, where we get to connect with each other outside of our usual concerns. So the first graduation ever at Millennium School was probably my favorite example of this. Students went on a week-long camping trip. All kinds of rituals were there, including having to do a night solo in the forest away from anyone else. And then on the last day, we hiked up to this kind of lookout point in the Sierras. And we thought we were designing the ritual as adults. And so we did the thing that we had planned, which was we had asked every student's parents to write them a letter in secret that would basically say, this is what I see in you. This is how I've seen you grow. This is what I admire about you. And we asked each student to find a sit spot, just a quiet place to themselves. And then we just delivered these letters and asked them to kind of reflect on it, to read it, um, to notice how they're changing. And it was beautiful. And there were tears and we kind of thought there, we did it. Uh, we have done the ritual. They have had this moment of a beautiful reflection. And then we started coming down the mountain and we took a different route back. And there was a pretty sizable kind of snowmelt stream, probably about 12 feet across and extremely cold. And we hadn't really planned on how to get across it. And so students suggested, you know, while we adults were kind of all scratching our heads, you're like, what if we made this crossing our graduation and said that, you know, on this side of the stream where we are now, we're eighth graders. And when we get to the other side, we are ninth graders. We've completed this part of our adventure and we're moving on. And we said, that sounds beautiful. So one teacher stood in the center of the stream and, you know, everybody took off their shoes and got ready to walk through almost ice cold water that was probably a foot deep. And they stopped in the middle of the stream, spoke to that teacher, kind of shared, shared their reflection of what's happening for them in this moment and what their intention is going forward. Got to the other side, everybody is hooping and hollering and cheering and crying. And one by one, we just, we watched them all cross, got to the other side, got back on the bus, drove home. That was the conclusion of three amazing years that you know, included the Washington DC trip and hiking and all kinds of personal change. So yeah, I'll never forget that one. And it reminds me that kids can create these rituals themselves. It's not all an adult that experience. 
Incredible. Thank you so much, Chris. And LinkedIn friends and rebel educators, Chris's book, Finding the Magic in Middle School, is available on Amazon and anywhere you purchase books. You've heard a few of the stories. There are so many incredible stories and ideas from his experience launching Millennium and launching other schools and programs. Definitely go get the book. Reach out to Chris on LinkedIn. Ask him any questions and connect with him there. And if you're looking for an innovative middle school, Up Academy is launching a middle school this fall, incorporating many of the ideas in this book. We've worked with Chris and different educators around the world, as well as our team, our community. And you heard me talk about our student involvement as well to build an incredible program. So thank you, Chris. Thanks so much, Tanya. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Rebel Educator podcast. I'd invite you to check out rebeleducator.com, where you can see all of our upcoming workshops, webinars, and professional development opportunities. UpAcademySF.com, where you can see our current progressive elementary school in action. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and rate our show so that others can find it and love us too. Keep resisting tradition, Rebel Educators. Rebel Educators.